Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, Episode 13, the Grand Romantic Gesture Edition. I'm Scott Tobias, editor of the Dissolve. On today's special Valentine's Day show, we offer you a bouquet of segments on love and movies, but don't think we're going soft on you. In our first segment, we'll examine the current state of romantic comedy. Has it reached a creative and financial impasse, or have reports of its death been greatly exaggerated? We then dim the lights and offer some of our favorite romantic gestures, those moments that have made us swoon. The game this week is I Heart Hollywood, in which I test our panelists' knowledge of gimmicky rom-com premises. And finally, we wrap it up, as always, by smoking a cigarette and exhaling recommendations with 30 seconds to sell. Stay tuned, Dissolvers. In an essay for The Atlantic a few weeks ago, Alexander Holes praised a bounty of cinematic romances like The Spectacular Now, The Broken Circle Breakdown, and Enough Said but contrasted the authenticity and feeling of those films with Hollywood romantic comedies, which he deemed shallower and more synthetic. Along with that thought, Sundance Now columnist Michael Koreski also wrote about the death of the women's picture in favor of male-oriented weepies. Given what we know about how few female-driven films of any kind are being produced in Hollywood, the state of rom-coms and straight-up romances seems perilous. Here to talk about it is Tasha Robinson. Hello, Tasha. Hi, Scott. Genevieve Kosky. Hi. A pleasure, as always. And uh, via Skype, Sam Adams, who uh, examined these issues in a piece for IndieWire called Who Killed the Woman's Picture? Hello, Sam. Hello. So, so uh, let's start with the state of the rom-com. Uh, I've always held a view similar to Alexander Hull's, uh, that modern rom-coms are never that romantic, or funny even, and that they could and should be entertaining and diverting while also allowing for more relatable situations in human beings. Uh, am I alone in that, uh, Sam Adams? No, I, I, don't, I don't think you are, and I think it's important to distinguish when you're talking about these things, sort of what, uh, you know, what we mean by romantic comedy and and the changes that are happening in the films themselves and the things that are happening with with the audience as well. So I, I think there's generally a lack of what we might loosely call reality in kind of studio films across the board. I mean, people don't live in houses or apartments that look like the houses or apartments of anyone you know. They don't have recognizable jobs you know the the scenarios are just never you know familiar. So it, I think the romantic comedy is just kind of part and parcel of that. That's a good point. Uh, what do you think, Tasha? I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with artificiality in movies per se. I mean, I think a lot of people go to the movies for kind of fantasy escapism, and for people who for whom fantasy escapism doesn't mean something like Brazil, it can just come in the form of you know people who happen to have fabulous apartments, even though they're working as publishers' assistants in uh, New York City, um, or you know what have you. I don't have a problem with that. It's the artificiality of human beings that bothers me like far more than the jobs or the settings, and that's what I like especially in modern rom-coms, I just don't watch them anymore um, because they have so little bearing on any kind of relationship or, or any kind of human feeling. And actually, um, I was reading a piece by uh, Christopher Orr in The Atlantic uh, called Why Are Romantic Comedies So Bad? And he seized on something that just immediately like lit up part of my brain, like that, that explains everything, where he kind of talked about the reason uh, romantic comedies have failed in the, the modern era is that like old school romances of any kind in any medium were often the the barriers between people getting together Mm -hmm. were things like 
can I get my parents' approval? Are we the same social class? Are we like in a relationship that is in some way forbidden by society? Do we like each other, but we're not allowed to be in the same room together because you know that would be societally uh, impossible to approve? All of these these barriers that used to exist don't exist anymore. You know, these days, if two people want to get together and bang on a first date, uh, you know, that's kind of how a lot of people operate. So what's the big deal? So we have to have these incredibly artificial barriers to getting people together, and they've gotten more and more gimmicky. And now, these days, when you say romantic comedy, I, for me at least, the first thing that comes to mind is, okay, what's the what's the really fake artificial gimmick keeping them apart that is going to eventually collapse, and then they're going to make a bad choice that, that pushes them apart again, and then they're going to drop that and get back together. It's It becomes very formulaic, and it's all about separating them and then getting them back together. I think if we could get around all of that and go in that direction of, of more realistic relationships, there's so many things in relationships already keeping people apart. You know, why do we need the why do we need the gimmicks? Why do we need all the fake stuff? But see, I associate those gimmicks like when you talk about rom com, I think of those gimmicks you're talking about. Like pretty much every movie in in any genre has a love subplot of some sort. So there needs to be some sort of dividing line, like what makes a romantic comedy as opposed to just a comedy that has a romantic interest. And at least in in what I like, I actually kind of like those super high concept gimmicky rom-coms when they're done well. The point stands that they are not often done well and that that high concept can go way too high and, like you say, become really artificial. Can you give some examples of, of a high concept romantic comedy that works for you? Well, I can give a recent one, although I might kind of be contradicting myself in that it is not... It may not even be considered a romantic comedy, <laughs> but that is the uh, recent About Time, mm-hmm. um, which is a time travel romance centered on a male protagonist, which is something else that we should, we'll probably yeah. talk about in this discussion. Um, but I, I think like time travel uh, as, a, as a concept is something that is so... Uh, time travel as a movie concept it can go either way so easily that putting it in a romantic comedy is just asking for trouble but I actually kind of liked what that movie did with it uh, flawed as it was well that movie is also written and directed by Richard Curtis who's who is you know very much associated with maybe maybe the central figure in the modern rom-com right he did uh, Love Actually and he did uh, Notting Hill and some others like that I mean do you like what that particular filmmaker or I I feel like I can't say I like Love Actually anymore (laughs) yes you can um well Yes and no. I mean, like it's like I said, they're very flawed. But I, I don't know. I, I think like what's a perfect rom com? Like I feel like rom coms are always flawed, and it's about loving them despite their flaws, making it a really good metaphor for love. <laughs> you know yeah. what I would uh, point out is the one of my perfect rom coms is the Steve Martin movie Roxanne, mm-hmm. and I mean that's a movie that draws a lot of its DNA from Cyrano de Bergerac, which you know is a classic rom com, like a classic theatrical rom com. Which I, I don't think there's anything wrong with extending the name of that genre to literature or to uh, theater, you know, if, if the name fits, wear it. But I mean, that is a movie that has romantic situations and not very much drama. There's not a whole lot of realism in the relationship there. Uh, but the banter is great, and the situation keeping people apart is, is fairly relatable, you know? Uh, Steve Martin's character is has a gigantic nose and he thinks he's ugly and people are turned off by it and so he can't pursue the woman that he wants and sort of navigating that is what drives the story and drives the plot there's no need for well except that she's a robot and he's an alien and they're in different time streams and it's on the moon and <laughs> just you know all of the stuff that that comes into modern rom-coms to separate people you know it's it's 
still pretty high concept. It's still pretty artificial and bantery, but it's it's based in something real. And that's I think that's part of what gives it its heart. But the other part that gives it its heart is that the dialogue is great, the jokes are funny. Mm-hmm. Well, let me let me ask uh, pose a question to the group if I if I may overstep my bounds. Um, one of the things uh, Alexander Holz's article that I found uh, this problematic for me is he, is he basically says, well, the modern romantic comedy is bankrupt. Why can't romantic comedies be more like these movies? And as Scott mentioned, he mentioned uh, the, the Broken Circle breakdown, and one of the movies he mentioned is Enough Said. Mm-hmm. Um, how many of us think that Enough Said? is romantic comedy. I'm just curious. I haven't seen it, so... I okay. Oh, say it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't necessarily play by those rules, but, I mean, it, it does have a comic situation, and it does have some romance, so it is a, a rom-com. I mean, it's something like Spectacular Now is really just, no, there's no comedy in there really at all. No, not funny, yep. <laughs> no, I mean, it, either that or it just fails spectacularly as a comedy. <laughs> I, I, would, I would call Enough Said a romantic comedy, or I, I think it's, like, kind of where like we're steering romantic comedies now which is like uh in a direction of a what looks like like reality and verisimilitude but it's still very like there's a really big contrivance sure. at the center of yeah. that that is sure no different than you know something you would see like in the heyday of like you know 90s ridiculous romantic comedies mm-hmm. your uh, uh how to lose a guy in 10 days and all that stuff like it uh, it's it's still a ridiculous contrivance, but I think part of that is just Nicole Hollis Center, like what she does, is making it seem very uh, down to earth and relatable. That's what I was thinking when Tasha was oh, talking about Christopher Orr's piece, when about about these obstacles that that used to be quite real. I mean, you you see a film like Adam's Rib. I mean, that that is about equality. That is about that is about Catherine Hep, Hepburn, you know, asserting herself as equal to Spencer Tracy in that relationship. Uh, and so when you, again, when those obstacles fall down, you create these, these artificial barriers. And, and that's something that Nicole Hollip Center certainly does in Enough Said, but tries to transcend it by making the characters a little bit more uh, down to earth and realistic. And maybe that's a compromise that maybe Hollywood can, can go for. I mean, because I think there's this need, one of the needs for, the, for these artificial obstacles, too, is you need some sort of hook to, to people keep putting people on the line. I mean, you need the 27 dresses mm-hmm. idea. And then maybe within that context, you can have characters behave in a more uh, relatable way. But I think that's the, the problem is that that doesn't happen. The whole thing becomes artificial. Yeah. I, I mean, I question whether we do need that hook, whether you need the, you know, she can't, she can't remember our 49 previous dates. Well, pretend so it's a to... business though, right, Tasha? I mean, pretend, mean? I mean, Hollywood is, I mean, you have to sell the movie, I think, would be the argument against that. Well, sure, you have to sell the movie, but, I mean, like, something like... I, I guess one of the pieces that uh, the his piece makes is that, like, all of these movies together that he's that he's naming off... I mean, Enough Said is just the first one on, like, a list of really pretty great movies, you know, including Her and Before Midnight and Broken Circle Breakdown and Blue is the Warmest Color, Spectacular Now I wasn't as sold on. But one of the things he says is, you know, while all of these movies had like realism and, and depth and aesthetic, uh, you know, joys to them, they, they made less than $50 million total, which, uh, you know, I was, I was sort of citing 50 first dates. I don't have that data here, but I'm, I'm willing to bet that that cracked like $100 million. So, I mean, in terms of like making something that's going to make that kind of money, 
I like I don't know. I mean, is the artificiality the answer? It seems like well, we're seeing fewer and fewer of those like concept-driven, uh, really artificial uh, romantic comedies. Uh, I think we're actually seeing a lot right now, uh, but they're just centered on male. It, it's like merged with the the uh, romantic comedy. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah. Idea like just in the last week, we have that awkward moment. Uh, Cavemen and Somebody Mary Buried, uh, the latter two of which I haven't seen. I've just uh, <laughs> yeah. read reviews of and can tell from the review they are high concept romantic comedies centered on dude bros. And yep. so th- that that is a whole other tro- somewhat troubling trend to me. And I'm tempted to trace it back to just kind of the, um, I guess it could be traced back all the way to like, uh, there's something about Mary or something, the the merging of kind of raunch. The Fairley com- brothers. Yeah, the yeah. merging or of like raunch. The, the 40-year-old virgin. Yeah, but I was, I was going to say Apatow's could be like the flashpoint of it. Um, mm-hmm. Just that idea of, uh, you know, guys can, you know, be dudes, but still have... Soft, squishy stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, as long as it comes with a lot of, you know, swearing and vomiting and drinking beer. As long as they punch each other in the arm after it's over. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, I wonder, I want to hear what Sam's thoughts on that, considering, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of uh, the disappearing woman's picture and how that plays into that. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a point that Michael Koreski makes in his piece at, at Sundance now, is that, is that part of what's happened is that the movie business has become so focused on you know, rather than sort of going after the big four quadrant hits, it's really only interested in one quadrant, which is young males. Um, so if you're going to make a movie about romance, it has to be about basically a kind of, inf- you know, semi-infantilized adult male or or teenage male who's kind of trying to grow up and, and maybe trying to take his first relationship seriously. And those are kind of the the romantic comedies or the comic romances or whatever you want to call them that seem to have the box office clout right now. I was thinking of, you know, just in terms of one of the things that make romantic comedies, especially as a sort of thriving genre, is stars. You know, and I can't think of who the sort of current equivalent of, you know, Meg Ryan or Julia Roberts or Sandra Bullock in in their heyday or or Anne Hathaway even, you know, five years ago, who that would be. I mean, you look at somebody like Shailene Woodley and she's not, uh, you know, she's taking a sort of much more serious and more kind of genre-driven path. You know, she's in, you know, Divergent and she's in, you know, The Fault in Our Stars, which is, I guess, more of a, a weepy, you know, not a comedy, but is seems to be somewhat of a classic, more classic women's picture. Catherine um, Hagel. Yes. I, I feel like Catherine Hagel is already like waned. Is, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> is she over the hump? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is like two of the biggest movies of the last few months were centered on female protagonists. You're, you're catching right. fire and frozen. So this this idea that Sam's talking about of, you know, appealing to only one quadrant seems especially stupid well, in, especially in light of that. Like the, the latest motion picture of America uh, statistics show that more women see movies than men. You know, and more older women see movies than younger men. I mean, the the statistics show that there's an audience for these kind of movies. I think there's just this, well, first of all, there's the ongoing problem with women not directing movies, mm-hmm. women not producing movies, women not writing movies in the same uh, numbers that men are. And second of all, this this ongoing ridiculous prejudice that women will tolerate movies about men, women will let themselves be dragged to action movies, but men will never let themselves be dragged to movies that have uh, that focus on a relationship or focus mm-hmm. on emotion. 
Right, and it's just how many times is Hollywood going to be surprised by the same thing? People's had kind of made the same comment when the Best Man Holiday opened last year and did a ton of business, and it was like, oh my God, you know, black audiences exist and they buy movie tickets, and it's like, how many how many times do we have to keep learning that before you just remember it? <laughs> it's I mean, it's like like every couple of years we still have to get still have to get another story that in the vein of Pow Zap, comic books aren't for kids anymore. Like, yeah. That was old news. 25 years ago guys like catch up with times i wonder if it's just that like romantic comedies have become so kind of like ghettoized in everyone's estimation that like filmmakers who could do a good job with them avoid them like we were were talking about you know who would be the the julia roberts or whatever like i would love to see a jennifer lawrence romantic comedy i would love to see her anchor a rom-com but she's not going to do that you know because it's you know it's not prestigious and it's not a huge franchise, which is what she's known for now, you know? Um, it, it, I think, like, rom-coms are beginning to look like, you know, if you're in a rom-com, you're slumming it a little bit. Well, it, especially for women. I mean, if, if it's true that, you know, the bromance and the male-driven romantic story is more and more of the direction that the field is going in, at that point, if you're playing the woman in that movie, your your only job is to be a like a tiresome scold who represents adulthood to the men right. children. And, well, like, who wants that role? I mean, one thing that's worth pointing out, too, is that I, I think one of the things that's happened is, I mean, there is obviously a romance uh, or sorry rather an audience for these you know sort of romantic comedies but i think as with a lot of other you know female driven female centered storylines a lot of that audience is kind of being served on television i mean i think Mm -hmm. you know girls or the mindy project or or new girl i mean that's where you know some of the best romantic comedy type stuff is is going on now it's not happening in movie theaters and then that becomes the sex in the city movie Oh. Yeah. oh no! <laughs> Maybe oh. that's what killed the rom-com. Oh, we went to a dark place. <laughs> yeah. There, so, so okay. you know, Tasha and Genevieve, uh, you know, this film, this spectacular now, has been sort of mm. put as sort of cor- as pro- a potential corrective. Uh, but I know that you two both had problems with Shailene Woodley's character in that in that in that movie. Could you talk about that in a, a little bit? No, uh, Noah Berletsky wrote a terrific piece about this. I think for the Atlantic, kind of talking about how. Like the the piece is actually about geek girls in cinema and how this is like a very nuanced uh, and interesting character type that exists out there but but doesn't get the right kind of play that the geek girl is uh, constantly being stereotyped and here's a movie that creates one with a lot of nuance the problem and he just kind of touches on this in the piece but I think he he does it very well the fact is that the film abandons her like I think mm-hmm. she's a great character I think she's incredibly well portrayed I think the early going of uh, the relationship between her and her male counterpart is very tender and very, very well executed. And then the movie loses interest in her and just uh, kind of dumps her by the side, uh, initially sort of figuratively, but eventually literally yeah. dumps her by the side of a car <laughs> in order to focus on the, the dude's man pain. And I know that's a very dismissive uh, way of putting it, but for me, it was just kind of like, I, you know, I've seen this exploration of, you know, the, the young, sad man who can't quite pin down what he wants and is just sort of floating in space over and over and over. And here you had a complicated, nuanced, interesting relationship, and you just dumped it to kind of focus on how he's a mopey dude who hasn't quite connected with his dad, so he hasn't quite connected with his masculinity, and he drinks too much. And like the romantic side of the the film went nowhere. 
And I understand that a lot of these movies have a desire to move away from sort of both the comedic side and the romantic side to take it into drama so that you have an arc, so that you have stakes. But in this case, the movie to me just dropped everything that was interesting about it in order to go into a very, very standard non-rom-com place towards the end. And it just, it it lost me. Yep, what Tasha said. (laughs) (laughs) Very well put, Genevieve. Uh, uh, Sam, uh, Tasha, uh, Genevieve, thanks for joining me. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. One of my favorite Onion stories has the headline, Romantic Comedy Behavior Gets Real-Life Man Arrested. Uh, And if you've seen enough romantic comedies, you know that many of these grand, elaborate gestures from the movies would make you seem like a stalker or worse in real life. But the movies are also full of gestures that make us swoon, from John Cusack holding the boombox over his head and say anything, to subtler moves like a great one-liner or a stolen kiss. Here to share their favorite romantic gestures with me are Tasha Robinson. Hello, Tasha. Hi, Scott. And Keith Phipps. Hi, Keith. Hello. Uh, Tasha, let's start with you. Um, uh, what, what, what are some of your favorite moments? You know, it seems like in cinema, when people say best romantic gestures, they usually mean biggest romantic gestures, and those have never really done it for me. I mean, I, I kind of like uh, Dustin Hoffman <laughs> banging on the church window at the end of The Graduate, um, Lloyd Dobler, you know, stuff like that. I, like, it's nice, but it often doesn't hit me where I live. The stuff that really touches me most um, are like the the really little romantic gestures. And then the problem is it's really hard to remember those because they're really little romantic gestures. But the one that's always uh, touched me most, I think the one that just cuts most closely to my heart, is the moment where Robin Williams hands Amanda Plummer the little chair that he's just made out of the top of a champagne bottle in The Fisher King. And the reason that that's always touched me is because he spent so much of the movie not engaging with her because he feels like he can't, he doesn't dare to. He he's watched her from afar or he's let other people reel her in but he's actually trying to connect with her on a personal level and he does it with this tiny little gesture where he's just he's made something for her and he's opening up to her in a in a very sweet way and like that tiny perfect gift the thing that's not necessarily uh like a big present um but is just like the perfect thing at the perfect time it just comes up for me over and over. The other one that immediately leapt to mind was in uh, My Neighbor Tortoro, where you remember the little boy, his name's Kanta. He's kind of uh, like at a distance from the two little girls throughout mm-hmm. the movie. There's a point where she and her little sister, uh, the character is named uh, Sasuki, May's the little sister. Okay. They're in a rainstorm, like taking shelter in a uh, under a shrine, and he comes up to them and thrusts his umbrella at them. Just, you know, take this. No words and this incredibly obstructive look on his face and he just shoves it at them and they refuse to take it and he puts it down and runs away and just just the little the little gift gesture is just something i love what about you keith so i mean you bring up lloyd dobler but the month the and and the big boombox scene in uh say anything and uh uh, actually, though, there's another scene from Say Anything that really leapt immediately to mind, and that's after uh, Lloyd, uh, John Cusack, and, and Diane, as played by Oni Sky, uh, uh, have sex, I think, for the first time in the back of, of a car. Uh, there's, a, there's a point where he's shaking, and she notices it, and whatever's happened has clearly affected him at least more visibly than it's affected her. And, and uh, um, 
she kind of like questions him and then really figures out that she really, this is an emotionally sensitive guy that, uh, uh, isn't really processing what's just happened to him, uh, as well as she has, or as quickly as she has. And, and, uh, she says, here, have a blanket and listen to this song. It's a really good song. And that, that moment just, that just, just kills me every time I watch that movie. I just, uh, it's such a small thing and it's, uh, uh, uh maybe in some ways, uh, less lends itself to, uh, clip reels less easily than the boom box over the head. But, I, but I love that moment. And of course the song is that song from the boom yes. box. So it gives you that pre-court cursor to it and that association, uh, which kind of brings me to one of my uh, examples, uh, which also has to do with associations. Uh, if people are <laughs> liking that transition. Um, <laughs> it's in the mood for love. Uh, you know, many of my favorite romances are about unrequited love. And Wong Kar Wai is particularly good at showing lonely hearts who have trouble making connections. Um, so, and he does it by patterns of behavior and associations drawn by music. Uh, so in the mood for love, you have Nat King Cole singing Kisas, 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 which is powerful on its own. But then you also have Tony Leung and Maggie Chung, whose names I've probably butchered, uh, descending uh, alone into the, this noodle shop, all set to the same piece of scoring. And obviously they're not on screen together. They pass sometimes. Uh, but because Wong Kar Wai has made these associations, we do got to get a sense both of, both of this intimacy and connection and also the fact that they ultimately won't connect or can't connect. I mean, and, and adding to that, if, if um, you know, maybe a little outside the film, but... But uh, I know uh, Wong has talked about how that's you know a song for him from his childhood, and then the whole movie is kind of shot through this idea of this past that's irretrievable. It's a, it's a movie about love that never happens and a past that's irretrievable. There's just layers upon layers of melancholy in that in that in that moment uh, and in that movie. Yeah, I think there's some something to be said for the the unrequited love gesture, like the the big romantic gesture that the recipient doesn't fully either doesn't fully appreciate or does appreciate, but it doesn't go anywhere. I mean, like I'm not a huge fan of the romantic gesture, the self-sacrificing romantic gesture that destroys the person giving it. I mean, then there's a lot of that. I guess in literature that's been turned into film. Um, Tale of Two Cities. Tale of Two Cities, uh, House of Mirth, uh, Scarlet Letter. Um, <laughs> in a more modern and less woman destroying herself example, there's that movie Camille that uh, Nathan just wrote up, ends with a big self-sacrifice. And stuff like that, I, I'm generally not a fan of. But the moment in Les Mis where Eponine sacrifices herself for Marius, who she's been like moping around over the entire film, she gives her life for him. And then she sings a song about it. And his reaction is essentially, oh, man, that was sad. Let me go mope some more about the chick that I really care about. So it's a it's not that he doesn't appreciate the gesture. You know, he holds her. He sings to her tenderly. And then he basically drops her corpse and walks off to sing a song about, you know, that was kind of sad. I wonder if the girl I like would be as sad if that happened to me. You know, it, it becomes all about him. That does not in any way tarnish the beauty of the gesture or the beauty of the moment. I mean, it doesn't have to be requited to be beautiful. Oh, yeah, um, I actually kind of. I also wanted to. To I had a couple more here that that are, I guess, would rank among the large in the large gesture category. But 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 that I this, again immediately I was trying to do this like like you maybe or maybe both of you is just try to think what's the first thing that comes to mind what, what really cuts the heart and I think you have to mention uh, or I have to mention anyway uh, the before sunrise slash sunset slash uh, midnight uh, trilogy which has plenty of romantic gestures and uh, you know i really like uh you know the poem that's improvised for them in the first one uh but that song uh that julie delpy plays uh at the end of before sunset uh just hits me like a ton of bricks i mean it's so intimate and so full of feeling and now that we have this third 
movie, um, you know, we can see that it prompts both of them into making a very profound decision that really complicates their lives. Uh, and so I think it kind of has some more, you know, has even more resonance now. Uh, and then the other one, and I think this is, this is one that will be on a lot of those lists, I suppose, of great romantic moments, is, is the end of City Lights, uh, uh, where uh, Charlie Chaplin appears to this once blind flower girl whose sight he has helped restore and now she can see him as the the, the ragged uh, picked upon uh, buffoon uh, that he is and, and she laughs at him through this this flower store window like everyone else uh, but then there's this very subtle moment where she realizes that he's can I get through this without crying? <laughs> Where oh. she realizes that he's her benefactor, and it just completely transforms the scene, and it's just uh, you know one of the you know one of the all-time great movie endings. Yeah, and here I'll make you cry some more uh, because uh, <laughs> when I watched that film again for the first time in years, every time I saw it as a kid, I, I you know was more of a romantic sap, I guess, than I am now because I just assumed, oh, and then they go off and live happily ever after, and I have actually no idea where that ending goes from there. I don't yeah. know if those two have a future together or not, and I think that makes it just sadder and that much more beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Cycling back to the uh, before the before movies, I guess you would call them as a as a trilogy. There's something really special about that the musical moment. I and I think it's because music is so personal to people that like giving somebody a song or letting somebody in on the song that's that's part of your emotions. And wow, now I'm having a Garden State flashback that I really don't want to have. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, uh, that's called a buzzkill or something. I don't know what that's called. But uh, you know, there are all of these moments in musicals where somebody kind of gives somebody else a song or presents somebody else a song. And I think about uh, Heath Ledger humiliating himself in Ten Things I Hate About You and how that's, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the small sacrifice. He's kind of dropping his dignity to show this girl how much he likes her. Yeah. But it's also just, it, you know, it's a big emotional, like happy moment. It's a positive moment. Or in Moulin Rouge, where uh, Ewan McGregor's character uh, tries to seduce Nicole Kidman by singing <laughs> this insane medley, and like watching her be won over by him, just kind of like pouring out like all of these musical moments in his heart. Um, forgetting Sarah Marshall, I hate the relationships in that movie so much, <laughs> and yet because the actors are so great, they can be so winning. And the moment at the end where <laughs> Mila Kunis shows up to watch Jason Segel put on his ridiculous vampire musical that he's he's put together because she urged him to earlier. I mean, there's the whole interplay earlier where she kind of sort of humiliates, sort of helps him get up on stage, yeah. and that's a gesture, and then he plays the song for her, like, in public, and that's a gesture back. So, like, the little give and return there of musical stuff, it, despite, it's great. Despite you just despising all of them. It's not, it, it's mostly that, uh, like, the whole... <laughs> Basically, all you have to do is be pathetic, and uh, the most beautiful woman in the world will throw over her job and, and her world in order to do anything <laughs> for you. I find ridiculous about yeah. that movie, but I, but it still wins me over because the characters are so winning and the things they do for each other are so winning. The whole thing where he gets himself beat up in order to recover the topless picture of her uh, from the bartender, mm -hmm. like I mean, that's, again, kind of a little self-sacrificing gesture. The whole thing where she books him into a suite he can't afford so he will have some time to kind of get over the pain that he's going through. That whole movie is just a ping pong back and forth of people doing things for each other in a way that's really pretty touching. Huh. And it's the only one that you were kind of led with the happy ending there too. You know, so many of these are, are moments that, that might not work out. I mean, I think sort of the, the ultimate, of course, is the end of Casablanca. I'm not sure there's a more a grander, more romantic gesture than that. And, and uh, um, yeah, I think it's kind of a, a, sort of a tough standard to live up to, but but I think it's all in in some ways 
most of the moments we're talking about aspire to that moment of of uh, of uh, where it's not quite clear where things are going to go, or in that case, it is clear where things are going to go, and it's not toward a happy ending. Yeah, the two big classics on my list were uh, Casablanca, which is just one of the great sacrifices of all time, and uh, Gregory Peck letting go of his story at the end of Roman Holiday, where you know he has this uh, terrific story that will make his career, and he decides to just quietly drop it so Princess Anne can have her have her life and have her moment, have the holiday that she had as something other than a careerist move for him. I love that. Well, the things we do for love, eh? I don't know. So, uh, Keith and Natasha, thank you. Now it's time to play a game I've dubbed I Heart Hollywood, in which I offer the premise of a gimmicky romantic comedy, and you name that movie. For example, if I were to say, she is really lucky, he is really unlucky, a storm hits and their fortunes reverse. Genevieve Kosky would say, "Just my luck." Just my luck, Starring right? Exactly. Lohan and Chris we'll, we'll give you a point for that. No, we won't give you a point oh, for yeah, that. No, us. no, no. Uh, but uh, but barnyard buzzers are in effect, as you as you just heard, uh, which means that uh, if you buzz in with the incorrect answer, you lose a point. Uh, so be careful with those buzzers. Um, uh, joining me are uh, Keith Phipps. Let's Hello. hear your animal, please. Nathan Rabin and Genevieve Kosky. Still a cow. Still a cow. Um, okay, are we ready to roll? Just before we start, I, I, I've been listening to the game tapes from the last few ones. I think we're all getting sloppy. I think it's, we're just getting slow. We're unresponsive. Uh, me, most of all, I feel like I think we need to need to get you know we need to get back in the game here. I think we need to get the eye of the tiger back. Do you suggest uh, performance enhancing drugs? Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Well, I'll uh, we'll, we'll uh, do do our best here. Uh, are we ready? I'm just yeah. throwing that out as Let's a challenge, everyone. Okay. All right. Here we go. He and a friend are on vacation from bad marriages. She's his friend's teenage daughter. Who's the Who's the dog? Uh, that would be the motion picture entitled "Blame It on Rio." Blame It on Rio. Starring, uh, directed by Stanley Donen, written by Larry Gelbart. Yeah, no, the notorious "Blame It on Rio." Oh yeah. Okay. Um, he lost his wife to be in a freak accident just before their wedding. She's a psychic who could commune with the dead. The only obstacle. Nathan Raven. Would that be the motion picture entitled Vibes? No. Oh. Negative one for Nathan. Oh. The only obstacle to their oh, love no. is beyond the okay. grave. Oh, shit. Uh, people, you guys both know this movie. Yeah, I know. See, I knew people would know the premises, but not the name of the I movie. Can I tell you the actors? Yep, you can, but you can't. Can I give you like a word from the title? Oh, I, you probably no. can. Uh, uh, everybody here knows no, I'm gonna bu- I, I'm gonna. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the buzzer here. The it's over her dead body. Oh, yeah. Over her dead body, which is horrendous. And, uh, <laughs> so Absolutely are, are, are these all like uh, considered horrible movies? Not or, necessarily. Okay. Some of them are I have great. A couple of ones that are actually pretty good. Okay. Most of them are horrible. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but I have a feeling. I have a feeling that you all are going to get m- most of these. So uh, here you go. Hands on the buzzers. Sleep with him once. You're guaranteed to catch your future husband on the rebound. Ah. Who's the cow? Uh, me. Good okay. luck, Chuck. Good luck, Chuck. Ooh. One for Genevieve. Now you even... Did you see that film, Genevieve? I did not. It's... I saw the commercials for it. Oh see, I've God. seen it twice. So, oh. <laughs> and you still lost to me. Yeah. After a bad breakup and a series of one-night stands, he decides to give up sex for Lent. <laughs> yes. 40 that... days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights. No. Yeah, this, is quick, this is quick buzzer. What's the score? Are we, are we just... One, one, and zero. Yep. Nathan's got zero. He went forward no. and backwards. Oh, all right. Um, She's a passionate horticulturalist who needs a husband to secure the perfect apartment. 
Yes. Oh, I don't Keith know if that's Phipps. right, but I was going to say, no, they changed the name. I, I'm not even going to venture again. He's a Frenchman who marries her to stay in the country. No. <laughs> yes. That would be the motion picture entitled Green Card. Green Card. Yeah, it's not even Directed by thinking. Peter Weir. Peter Weir, his finest film. It's a Weir one. It goes, uh, it's, like, it's like Green Card, Gallipoli, et cetera. That goes in that order. <laughs> um, all right. She's an unemployed New York City beauty school instructor. He's the dictator of a small oh. Eastern European country. Oh. Who's first? I think it was Keith. The Beautician Damn and the Beast. Yes, Beautician oh. and the Beast. A lot of quick buzzer action on this one, people. Fran, who is the Beautician and who is the Beast? Fran Drescher and Timothy Dalton. Yeah. yeah. As James Bond. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, was a really, that was a really funny one. That was my example, so I'm throwing that clue away. Um, all right. In the case of a woman who shot her cheating husband, she argues for the defense. He works for the prosecution. Is that an episode of The Good Wife? <laughs> <laughs> no, it is a comedy Wait, classic. Is that Adam's Rib? That is Adam's yeah, Rib. Adam's Rib, Keith Phipps. Uh, after all these crappy films. I, I, know, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Since oh. Tracy Hepburn. Uh, that's, why, play there. That's, why the, that's why the gaming hat comes in handy. Because you never know what you're going to get out of that thing. It's a piece of Tupperware. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Quick buzzers. He's a washed-up former pop star turned behind-the-scenes songwriter. Uh, yes. That'd be words and music? No. Music and lyrics. Music yes, and lyrics. Genevieve. What Nathan said, music and lyrics. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> oh, Nathan. Yeah. I knew this was going to happen. I knew people would know the movies but forget the titles. Yeah. Diabolical in that way. Okay. He and she are reporters at rival Chicago newspapers. <laughs> Nathan Raven. I love Triple. Yes. I was going to say. The I want to hear the rest of his premise, though. It's the rest of the premise is they join forces to undercover a genetically altered milk conspiracy. <laughs> 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 like, how in the world did this movie flop? I don't I have no uh, idea. Oh, I love Trouble. Uh, <laughs> um, all right. Uh, we're 2-2-1. Two, two, and one. Especially when it has the explosive romantic this chemistry of Nolte and... is up and down uh, because he just, he just, just buzz in whether he knows something or not. Yeah. Um, Bear in mind, he was the, that was like a year out from being sexiest, people's sexiest man that's alive. That's true. Yeah. And, and two years out from being most grizzled man alive. <laughs> All right. Another quick, buzzer, another quick buzzer question, people. All right. He's a college student on spring break with his posse. She's a waitress on spring break with her friend. Yes. It is. Oh, my <laughs> God. It's the American Idol movie. And that no, no, would no, 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 be no, no. called... No, no, no. Yes. I think from Justin to Kelly. Oh. oh. Did I know? Okay. Yep. It does. Got to do a second. Oh, did I? Did you oh, not wait. buzz? Did, did we have did a nobody buzz? buzz? I buzzed. Did we I have buzzed. a buzz protocol? I think, I think we buzzed together, and then you buzzed after uh, that. So uh, I, I don't know what it So that, that was the fault of the Game Master for not... That was the, uh, co- no. that was the fault of me, but I think I think we should correct it, because I think Nathan was on top of this. Yeah, I think... Otherwise, yeah. so yeah, yeah, Which will tie things up and make things more interesting. And I'll anyway. be honest, I didn't know it until Keith started... Uh, Going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my favorite Justin Greeny vehicle. To date, so far. Oh, yeah. I mean, all of my moves are taken from the Pennsylvania Posse. Who is... At least... One person in that cast who went on to do bigger things. But. Ryan Gosling. Is that Ryan no. Gosling? No. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Gosling played the role of Justin Greeny. You mean, you mean young Humphrey Bogart himself? That's true. <laughs> but he was actually a Disney alum. Yes, he so was. Not That's why I thought it was plausible there. For That's right. true. Moving yeah. on. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Until <laughs> Who's got the barking that, that, dog? It's me. Yes, go ahead. I'm say 27 Dresses. Yes, God. yes. Oh. I love that movie. I don't love that movie, but I love to you hate know that it. movie. But you love Catherine Hagel. Yeah. Everybody yep. does. She's America's sweetheart. That's my movie that I'll leave on whenever it's on, just so I can get angry. <laughs> yeah. 
it's uh it's a good one um <laughs> also the dresses are pretty all of them no, some of them no. are they're all like bridesmaids they're all ugly bridesmaids dresses right um another another quick buzzer she's a big city copy editor who goes undercover as a high school student all right move who's move who's moving genevieve never been kissed never been kissed yeah. also set in chicago i, I like how many of these are like chicago publishing world that no longer exists <laughs> i know like ma- magazine writer slash editor is just the go-to it is. Uh, it is. female romantic comedy profession and like architect is male yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, yeah one of one of which is virtually extinct okay um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. right. Uh, uh, Nick, Nick Nolte and, right? and Julia Roberts play out of work rival. Uh, <laughs> and this has been the last Dissolve podcast that we're setting off. <laughs> um, okay. He dies suddenly of a brain tumor, but the romance doesn't end there. Instead, he uses a series of love letters. Oh, yes, crap. Barking Dog. It's that uh, Gerard Butler, uh, uh, Hillary Swank motion you picture. Still have a chance. Uh, that would be called Love Frank. Let's say, why not? No. It could be. You never know. Good title for a movie. That's a negative. Kids for love me. Gerard Butler. For goodness sakes. All right. Keith Phipps. P.S. I love you. That's correct. No, thanks, uh, Keith. I wanted to answer the question. That's, That's correct. So we, what, what is the score currently? Uh, the score is Keith with three, Nathan with two, and me with one million. Wow. That's me with three, too. Three wow. Okay. Oh, there are two la la. clues left. So this is uh, game. pretty interesting. All right. Here we go. Ready? Could be anyone. <laughs> this, is one of my, this is my favorite one, probably. He's a lonely suburban widower with an 11-year-old son. <laughs> Sorry. He's a lonely suburban widower with an 11-year-old son. <laughs> She's a big city hooker. <laughs> Wait. Oh. <laughs> move, move, no, move. No, no. I, no, I, no. I kinda, uh, you know what? No, I... I, I was going to say the motion picture milk money. Yeah. <laughs> Starting on Harris. She's, a, she's a big city hooker who's hooker. currently living in his boy's treehouse. If you didn't have that one, I did. Although I've never seen that movie. Oh, uh, and you have, But you have a hooker living in your treehouse. That's kind of weird. I can't resist that. I think... Did, did Genevieve just knock herself out of contention? I did. No. Uh, well, uh, I could still tie it up. I could still do a three-way still, tie. Okay. So so we're three, three, and two. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I had a tiebreaker question. Hmm. Maybe we'll have to come up with them real fast. It's good to know I'm, not the, only, I'm not the only treehouse hooker. <laughs> <laughs> there are other people, both in, in literature and in film. All right. In real life. Yeah. He still lives at home with his parents. She's the expert they hire. <laughs> Yes. That would be a motion picture entitled Failure to Launch. Failure to uh, Launch. Starring Matthew McConaughey and All Sarah right. Jessica Barker. Nathan Rabin, what has he won? Nothing. Just the... <laughs> hey. just the, just the yeah. uh, He's honor, won the opportunity. His honor back. He's won his honor back. A heterosexual man who knows about romantic comedies. <laughs> All right. Uh, Keith, uh, Nathan, Genevieve, thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And now we've reached 30 seconds to sell, wherein Matt Singer and Noel Murray have 30 seconds to convince me to buy their recommendation, whether it's for a film, a soundtrack, an idea, whatever. Matt and Noel have promised to help me run our Valentine's Day theme into the ground. So good luck, gents. Uh, Noel, let's start with you. Uh, Your time begins now. Yes, uh, my my choice is the uh, Warner Archive 9-film 5-disc Dr. Kildare movie collection. It contains all nine of the Lou Ayers starring films about the idealistic young doctor, maybe between 38 and 42. They all co-starred Lionel Barrymore as a wheelchair-clad mentor. And uh, it's sort of pre-television television. television. Uh, uh, Eight movies that are basically episodic and uh, tell individual stories about a doctor and his loves. 
Up oh, there you go. You're a little a little bit early. Thank you. Thank you. Started a little late, ended a little early, but I think we got the all the whole thing in there. Uh, thank you, Noel. Uh, Matt, are you are you ready? <laughs> I didn't realize I was supposed to do something romantic, but uh, ah, it's fine. I'll make it work. Okay. I just happened to pick something very romantic, anyway. All so. right, do it live. Fuck it. Exactly. All right. All right. Your time begins now. All right, in my mind, when you're ranking the greatest movies of all time, it has to go Citizen Kane 1 and Jim Cotta 2. Jim Cotta, of course. I mean, Citizen Kane may have a brilliant script. Jim Cotta, though, has an Olympic gymnast turned spy for the U.S. government journeying to made up a, Euro- a European country named Parmesan, where gymnastics equipment is inexplicably built into the local architecture. So there's pommel horses with uh, well, well, wells with pommel horse handles so you can fend off an entire town of crazy people with a rear scissor hop travel. And there's a romance in it, too. Jim Cotta is... <laughs> no. Oh, Matt Singer. I think there was a, a lot of amazing build-up there. Uh, uh, to, to, uh, but the romance part came in a little bit late, I would say. It was a, it was a last-second shot from half court. Uh, I'm not sure if it swished or not. Uh, I, think, I think if you were given uh, uh, 40 seconds to sell, you probably would have uh, uh, won this one. But uh, uh, we're going to have to give this one to Noel Murray. Congratulations, Noel. Uh, I'll, I'll accept it proudly. Okay. And, and in the meantime, I think uh, you should probably see Jim Cotta, uh, or if you want to be friends with Matt Singer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we'll do that. Uh, all right, guys. Thanks. That does it for episode 13 of the Dissolve podcast. Please join us in two weeks for more opinions, insight, and general tomfoolery. In the meantime, you can enjoy the Dissolve in Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and website form. And if you want to send a valentine or have any questions or thoughts, email us at feedback at thedissolve.com. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Love Daddy, Colin Griffith. Thanks for choo-choo-choosing us.